Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I am here with four-fifths of the full death panel and send some love to Jules, who is recovering from her own medical drama this week. But joining me today on this episode are my co-hosts, Artie Beerkant. Hello. Phil Rocco. Hey. And Abby Cardis. Howdy. And today we're breaking the format a little bit, and I just want to emphasize that we do not do this lightly. Usually we try not to make the show about us in any way or get too personal. (laughs) But um, we kind of have to today because I'm facing a really dire denial of a really crucial infusion medication that I've been prescribed since 2010. And it turns out that I'm actually up against a really big structural hole in Medicare that is nearly as fascinating as it is frustrating. So that's part of why we're going to talk about really one of the ways that the U.S. social safety net fails people with rare diseases, because what's going on right now in my personal life happens to actually just be a really good example of a very specific hole in the safety net. And one of the most important things that I think we do on this show is point out and articulate the nature and like purpose of holes in the safety net, why they actually exist and mm-hmm. how they exist, you know. And the specific hole that I've fallen through, which is where Medicare Part D has denied my medication regardless of massive proof of medical need and demonstration that the medicine is effective because of a technicality, which is that my disease isn't listed in one of these three big drug manuals called the Medicare Compendia. So this is actually a really instructive hole to look at and fully understand, and I think should kind of be inspiration to also start imagining what a better system of provisioning for our healthcare needs could look like, because it certainly doesn't look like what we're about to talk about today. Yeah, completely. So there's kind of, I think, two aspects to this show, probably. Um, one is we're going to talk through this specific you know, hole in the safety net that B is currently falling through. And the second is, as we'll get to probably towards the end, we basically haven't asked for help. Yeah. Um, very specific forms of help, not just like, you know, Google shit and suggest stuff to us or something. But we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that towards the end. As you'll see, we're ba- basically the, the problem that we're about to articulate is something that even, you know, we've we've reached out to some of uh, the the brightest wonks that we know, I would put it. <laughs> Not wonks in the pejorative sense, uh, like you know, not Iglesias wonks or something. The good but, ones, yeah, good wonks, good, good yeah. ones, good wonks. <laughs> the um, ones we like. Wonks who yeah. know that they're know what they're doing. Wonks who, uh, in some cases, are even you know class traders in the good sense, right? Yeah. Interested um, in undermining the organizations which employ them. <laughs> and I would say, what is it? All of them, but at least most of them have sort of responded to us with like uh what the fuck is this section of the social security code that is being used to deny this medication i did not know about this does this happen all the time and these are unanswered questions uh yeah. for you know that we're we're trying to get i mean the, the 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 commonality of this right is something that is an unanswered question i would say that we're trying to get answers to but also uh in general that's how specific this hole is um that bees fallen into Right. And and this is honestly a great example of why, for Artie and I, the demand in health communism was all care for all people. And why when we say that, we literally mean all care for all people. Because, you know, this example that we're working with today is really about my insurance company, which is a public-private partnership through Medicare, using a technicality to save money on my care just because they can, right? And whether that throws me into a situation where my disease comes roaring back, whether that interrupts my care or not, whether that care is proven to be good care or not, none of that is actually 
up for discussion in this drug denial. It's actually just what does the law say that Medicare has to pay for? And what does the law say that Medicare doesn't have to pay for? And because my diagnosis is so rare, I fall into that second category by default when it comes to certain aspects of Medicare Part D. And that's really what's fucking me right now. So as I already said, like, I hate to share my own shit, but you're getting that today. I have a disease called chronic relapsing inflammatory optic neuropathy, which is very rare. People call it CRION uh, as an acronym, C-R-I-O-N. Fortunately, there's a great medication that can treat this. It doesn't cure me. It really helps me a lot. It prevents me from getting worse. And Medicare Part D is denying this medication. Um, This afternoon, I'm going to sit down in front of an administrative law judge as part of this appeals process for a hearing. And it's actually one of the most extreme administrative burdens that I've ever personally participated in. Which is saying a lot. (laughs) Yes. And of course, all of this time, I've been going through this appeals process for over 50 days now. I have been without my medicine while I work on the appeal. And um, Cryon is an autoimmune disorder. It's a kind of So it's called an idiopathic autoimmune disease, which basically means we don't know why the fuck it happens. And we're not really sure uh, what the commonalities are between the patients and anything like that. So it's we really don't know a lot. But what we do know is that it requires a very delicate balance and constant medication to control the immune system. And Medicare Part D is throwing a wrench into that system and basically going to now allow my self-cannibalizing cellular system to just go and do whatever the fuck it wants while I'm going through this stressful appeal. So it's the worst possible situation to put a prion patient in where it's really about maintaining continuous treatment if you want any control Mm -hmm. over the outcomes that we actually really don't understand very well. So what's going on is that basically because cryon is so rare, there's actually no legal obligation for Medicare Part D to pay for IVIG because Cryon is not listed on any of the documents that show that, you know, FDA approval has been given to IVIG or in these three books called the Compendia. And the trick here is, is that in the Social Security Act, it says straight up and plainly, if a condition isn't listed on the FDA approval paperwork... And if it's not in these three books, Medicare Part D does not have to pay for it. Full stop. So for listeners who might be confused on this point, how is this how is this possible that this is happening given that you're on Medicare? Right. I think most people's understanding of Medicare is that it's a public, you know, it's a form of public insurance and the safety net. No, I mean, it's I mean, that's the question that we're really here to talk about today. And and it's quite simple in that Medicare Part D uh, is a public private insurance product. And we'll get into this in a little bit. But there are rules about what Medicare Part D plans have to offer as kind of minimum benefits. And it's really up to them if they want to go above and beyond what those minimum benefits are. And when Medicare Part surprise, uh, (laughs) They don't. They don't. Insurance they companies don't. not compelled yes. to do not something really will known often for, not like, do that thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a lot of voluntary coverage expansion. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh, gosh, yes. And so, you know, the the floor is basically that Medicare Part D plans must pay for things if they're medically indicated on the FDA approval paperwork for the drug or if it's listed in these three privately managed kind of encyclopedias of medications and treatment protocols that are called the Medicare compendia. And so you kind of have this two-way process of, uh, I think it provides the illusion that there's a way to catch people like me with rare diseases. Mm. And there is an exception for people with certain types of rare diseases that are types of cancer that's been added in that actually shows that Yes, Congress is actually aware that this loophole is a problem for disease populations like mine. However, when they opted to make an adjustment to the policy to make sure that they were accommodating rare disease patients, they actually opted to only accommodate rare disease patients who had cancer diagnoses. And part of the reason for that yeah. had to ridiculous. do with like the, the, the brand the peop- name. 
the brand name one, but the the fact that, you know, the change was really pushed through by advocacy efforts, cancer charities, um, you know, are very effective at this. And it can be mm-hmm. a fantastic way to like open doors for other diseases. But oftentimes when they're at the negotiating table, they're asked to kind of only make ass for themselves. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that for their patient population, that's the decision that gets made. And so we see these exceptions get added and people go, oh, well, there's an exception to this. There's a rare disease exception. You open the rare disease exception and it says cancer only. Rare right. Cancers, so, yeah. Right. And so, and so we have, while the, a lot of rare disease are, are cancers, right, there are actually thousands of rare diseases that aren't cancers. And so I'm, I'm really kind of being statistically punished here. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really important to understand that what's going on is that Medicare, this judge I'm going to talk to you today, administratively, there is no question, I need this drug. I deserve this drug. This drug is vital to my care. Right. Medical efficacy, medical necessity is not in question, the in issue, question, yeah. but yeah, also right. it is not the criteria on which right. this is judged, right. which is really important. Like I just just highlight that because already, you know, and I think we've talked about this multiple times in the show, like insurance companies can either they easily manipulate the questions about medical necessity mm-hmm. and like what studies count and what don't. But like the the real, uh, I mean, twist of the knife here is that it's like it's stipulated. Everybody agrees like this is medically necessary, but yet not even that complete like often arbitrarily used standard is the one like what is the standard um, that they use to like make this coverage decision? It's uh, pretty cut and dry. I can read you the exact sections oh. if you'd yeah, like. G- the give me the, yeah, give me, give me the chapter and verse. <laughs> oh, gosh, here, give me one second to pull my notes to that section. So. During the appeals process, right, so they denied my drug and they wanted uh, us to prove medical necessity for the drug. So my uh, my I get home care, home infusions. So my doctor and the home infusion company and their whole appeals team put together this huge packet, like over 150 pages. Here is all the medical necessity demonstrating that Beatrice's IVIG should be continued. Now, this happened like at the beginning of April, end of March. We immediately got a denial that said, oh, actually, we denied it asking for more proof of medical necessity. And you've provided that. And that's clear. However, we found that there's also this section of the Social Security Act that says that actually we don't have to pay for it for another reason. And they said that, you know, during the appeals process, when I cracked open the book to, you know, check my medical necessity against the compendium, against the FDA authorization for IVIG, it was determined that Cryon did not meet the requirements of a medically accepted indication under Section 1860D2E4 of the Social Security Act, which says a medically accepted indication is defined in general... In the case of a covered Part D drug used in an anti-cancer chemotherapeutic regimen, a prescription drug plan or MPD plan that can be substituted for its carrier in each place it appears, subject to subparagraph B in the compendia described in section 1927G shall be included in the list of compendia in the case of any other covered Part D drug. So like gibberish. Yeah, well, can I do a... My best layman's interpretation. I was going to say, please, please do, because zero of that made sense to me. But then if you go into like, well, what the fuck is going on here? And you look into this subject to subparagraph B described in section 1927G, what it says is like a medically accepted indication means any use for a covered outpatient drug, which is approved under the FDA Cosmetics Act or which is supported by one or more citations included or approved in any of the Medicare compendia. So what they cite is the gibberish. And you can't even figure out what is actually being used against you until you go into the Social Security (laughs) Act. You read the gibberish and you say, what the fuck is 1927G1B123? Yeah, Kafka, eat your fucking heart out. So this is this is the letter I got was like, here's this sort of alphanumeric code in the Social Security Act that says, no. Yeah. Would you like to appeal? 
Like, that's how much information I had. I had to go doing the digging to even understand what was going on, at which point I realized, oh, wait, this actually happened two years ago in January, exactly the same way. And the only way I was able to access my medication after that process, which was denied over and over, was because I moved states and got a whole new Medicare Part D plan. Well, you happened to have moved states. Right. Yeah. It was, it was, it like was you fortuitous for, timing. To be clear, it's right. not like we did that in response to this. Yeah, But it didn't fix anything. Right. It kicked the can down the road. And two and a yeah. half years later, I received the same denial because it's not like what was going on with the plan in New York is some unique cruelty of New York Medicare Part D plans. This is how Medicare Part D plans work. Right. But so, again, to... To sort of, you know, do a layman's translation of this, you have a section of the Social Security Code, which is cited to, to you as the reason why why this is not required to be covered by your Part D plan. Right. But again, if all of that gibberish is, you know, confusing to you, just think about it this way. It's it's what B kind of alluded to just earlier is what happened. B and her doctors and, and the infusion company were sending documents of medical necessity saying like, look, cryon you know, is treated this way with this. And so essentially what the insurance company did is say, aha, okay, cryon, let's look in this compendia. Let's look in these, you know, books of what drugs are officially required to be covered for what conditions. Oh, the condition isn't even in the compendia, which as we're saying, why would it be? There's not like thousands of bees out there no right i mean not just why would it be but like you know this is something that not just is going to be a problem for b but lots of other um you know populations of people either who have let's say uh rare diseases that are difficult to biocertify but also not also rare diseases like extremely MS. rare diseases that are not yeah. legible multiple right, but sclerosis also not, right. is MS treated is with also... ivig it's it's where we got the idea to treat by disease with ivig you know what's not in the compendia People with MS. Right. So, yeah. So whenever you're seeing like these patient populations, right, like you see how the insurance product bifurcates and then silos and silos out like the population into a smaller and smaller group, which is then able to be statistically punished through these kinds of of loopholes that were added into Medicare Part D when it was being constructed. And so ultimately, really what's going on is like the plan is saying, hey, there's a technicality that says we have no obligation to pay for it and yeah. we're under, you know, no yeah. obligation to go above and beyond that. And so you have to find another way to finance this drug or prove to us that there is a legal obligation for Medicare Part D to pay for it. So yeah. it's unlike any other drug appeal or denial in any other insurance product in the United States. Medicaid is different. Medicare Part A is different. Medicare Part B is different. Medicare Part C is different. Private insurance is different. ACA plans, exchange plans, those are different. Veterans Affairs, VA insurance, different. IHS, which is the reservation like version of Medicaid that's really fucking awful. Even mm. that is different. Yeah. So Part I, D alone has yes, this system in place where that, they can just simply say, oh, you're not in the book. Uh, right. Well, that raises a really important question. So, like, let me let me first just see that I've got this correct. Okay. So <laughs> it sounds not true, right? Well, I like, mean, I'm it, not imagining sounds, I mean, it's it believable to me. Real. <laughs> Look, I, it's it's like I feel like I've seen enough in my time to know that uh, policy frequently is just, uh, you know, the only question you have to ask is why is there not a, uh, a minotaur at the end of this maze yeah. instead of an administrative <laughs> law judge? But the um, but like it seems to me that the, the, this is the sort of setup uh, the. You know, the companies that have these Medicare Part D plans, they want to make sure that there's enough provisions in there so they can maximize their flexibility in coverage denial. Right. That's that's the sort of goal. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the like the interest group political economy outside of that is is so narrow and fragmented that like basically, you know, you've got different patient groups. They're like, well, as long as this, you know, uh, loophole doesn't exist for my group that's okay i'm willing to tolerate that so it's like really hard to get the 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 language kind of removed or changed but it seems like and and maybe i don't know how clear you know a, a sense of this you have but uh you probably have a much clearer sense than i do is that the the setup of this has a lot to do with the origins of medicare part d itself and the way that it was structured i mean is that sort of like it's 
though, like, how much do we have to understand about the history of Medicare Part D to understand, like, why this provision is so different than everything else and then and also sort of so screwed up? Yeah, I mean, it is helpful to sort of understand the context of why it might be this way. And part of that has to do with the particular moment in in which it passed, where a lot of the things that we talk about now and sort of rally against were really kind of just getting started. Um, Medicare Part D comes out of like a debate in the 2000 presidential election cycle. So you have Al Gore running as a Democrat and you have George W. Bush running as a Republican for the Zoomers in the audience who don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, So during the 2000 election, it was like a very contentious, dramatic debate around prescription drug coverage for seniors. Because when Medicare Parts A and B were passed in 1965, it was just A and B, which are hospital and outpatient insurance. So you're covering like the acute care, the in-hospital care and doctor's office cares and infusion care, that kind of like, you know, the, the local medical care that you can ambulate to and take yourself to and go home from at the end of the day. But Part D was only added in the early 2000s because initially prescription drugs were like completely left out of the equation. So Part D ends up being the project of Republican President George W. Bush. And he puts this together. You know, initially he has this proposal where he wanted to create like like a block grant thing. for Yeah, it was like a a block grant, um, like a voluntary benefit with like a federal subsidy to only help like low income beneficiaries purchase private drug coverage from like the private market, basically like paying uh, regular Aetna and Blue Cross Blue Shield to, to take seniors prescription drug coverage off the table. And by the time he's actually in office, you know, you have 9-11 happen. Um, There's a big economic downturn after 9-11. So by like 2003, when they're invading Iraq, this is when Medicare Part D is actually like up for debate. And so the big conversation is like, oh, we've got to spend all this money on the military. Time to cut social services, y'all. Like we need to push this to the private market. And that is the way to go. And so the big conversation doesn't become... Are we making sure that we're, you know, taking care of the issue that we wanted to address with seniors and prescription drug coverage and the fact that seniors can't afford their medications? Or are we, you know, concerned with other things like does this policy sufficiently push people onto the private market? Does this incentivize the growth of the private sector of Medicare and Medicare Advantage plans. And so the policy ends up being more about austerity and addressing the needs of a market and making the market and the conversation about, are we doing anything to change the landscape of affordability of prescription drugs actually fully falls out of the debate in Congress. And you have people like the Heritage Foundation, like slamming President Bush, like he's not proposing a sufficiently draconian plan when his proposal in 2003 has shifted from a block grant program to like a Medicare reform strategy that would be a targeted prescription only drug coverage only for like people on private Medicare plans and no drug coverage for people on the public Medicare plans. And so it was a way to incentivize people to be forced onto Medicare Advantage if they wanted any of their drugs covered at all. And Heritage Foundation and like the National Taxpayers Union were like, this is a disaster for the federal deficit still. Even if we push all these people onto these private plans, Medicare Part D is going to be a burden on taxpayers. We're going to bankrupt future generations. This is going to just ruin the economy. Yeah, and, and don't don't look at the trillion dollar imperial follies that are <laughs> that are currently going on. <laughs> yeah, but also then, like yeah, like a pri- sure a privatized uh, uh, approach to providing uh, health services. Sure, that the, the essentially the federal government's on the hook for. Sure, that'll save money. Right. That sounds like yeah, it's going to yeah, save yeah, money yeah. to me. Totally. <laughs> So it ends up being about this argument between two different groups of conservatives who are arguing about different shades and degrees of like manipulating poor seniors into buying insurance products to help grow these markets. And at the end of the day, when Medicare Part D passed, seniors were already furious with it, right? Like it already didn't work right away. It was clear. And when they were designing it, whether or not it worked was so far 
from the point of the conversation that was being had. It was all about the kind of debt and eugenic burden of what it would mean to make sure that seniors had prescription drugs and whether or not we as a nation could really afford that. And so, you know, as one of the ways that prescription drug coverage was intended to be controlled through these programs was to allow the Part D plans even greater leverage in drug denials than other plans that even Mm. existed. So part of that is because this is a population of people that those lawmakers believe are just deaths pulled from the future to pull our pandemic framework that we've used and borrowed from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel since 2020. But it is this idea of, well, the Medicare population is near death. Do they really need experimental therapies? Do they really need heroic measures? Do we really need to spend a lot on this care, which is for a population that is both waiting to die and a debt and eugenic burden on the survival of the nation going forward. That was the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the ways that it's helpful to think about these things and even just thinking about structurally how a lot of policies work and sort of shape a lot of these dynamics and shape situations like what's happening to be is, you know, what is being provisioned here to whom like who who is the actual kind of focus of this policy putatively like rhetorically in the in you know 2003 when this is being discussed the uh, target of the policy is people who are you know disabled like be people on ssdi or people who are people who are over 65 right uh the sort of bigger structural picture though that's sort of behind the rhetoric is what they are focusing on mostly is okay we are saying that we have to fulfill this need or that there's this unmet need within medicare let's do that through creating a market in Mm -hmm. order to create a market which the insurance companies were not super happy about because they i mean one uh one insurance executive at the time said for instance like they were opposed to it because it would be like creating insurance for haircuts uh which is a weird (laughs) quote but like his point was saying um, what he was trying to communicate was that basically the the only people who would even get these plans, who would even get prescription coverage under an, a Part D uh, Medicare plan would be like the people like B, frankly, with high prescription drug costs. And therefore, it would you know be difficult to make a profitable market out of, et cetera, et cetera. You're familiar with these types of arguments. And so, you know, then the concessions come in. Right. Where it is essentially, okay. let's narrow and narrow the space of what is required to be covered under this so that, you know, we can make sure that there is sort of a incentive, if you will, to get these private companies involved in administering this care or in being this sort of middleman. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So that they can profit off off of it. So, again, you know, when you evaluate this, it's like, okay, so who's what is the actual (laughs) You know, what, what is the actual goal here? What is the actual focus? Is there, I mean, certainly there's not enough attention or focus on actually supporting people and especially including, you know, people in edge cases like B who are very rare disease patients, right? Um, you know, it's, it's certainly not in supporting those people. It's certainly not in supporting the people who are on Medicare. It is, the priority is this, you know, producing a market. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's like really annoying, right? Is you might be like, okay, well, like, how many rare disease patients are actually potentially impacted by this, right? Like maybe it's Mm -hmm. only Beatrice and that's okay, right? Like maybe it's only Beatrice and 10 other people and that's okay. And, you know, there are only 30 million-ish people in the United States with rare diseases. This is not, you know, really a large population. When you throw in, you know, the MS population here, it gets bigger. But you could say, okay, this is, you know, less than 70 million people, so what? That's a lot of what's being said, too, about like the kind of populations that are really fucked over by eliminating masking in in healthcare settings, too. So it's not like completely unheard of for as a kind of administrative response to just see a situation like this and respond with a complete sort of statistical indifference. Right. But the fact of the matter is, is that we have gone above and beyond to 
make accommodations and concessions for these insurance companies in the way that we've set this up. And could you imagine if like even just an ounce of the same care was applied to making sure that like people who needed to get drug coverage got drug coverage when this policy was designed? You know, and that's the thing that at the end of the day really makes me so angry is that, you know, the... (laughs) The things that we pretend exist, right, for for patients, the things that we think are out there to catch people, they exist, certainly. And they stand in as this big kind of like excuse in people's minds that, yes, of course, like you're so sick that you're disabled and certified disabled by the state. Like, of course, your medicine, you've got proof that it works. You must have it, right? Like, how could it be possible that you don't have it? And actually, it's exactly as it's designed that I don't have it. Well, and, and exa- I think that's a really important point because, you know, again, not to exceptionalize B here. I mean, we're talking about the specific situation happening to B, but we also assume, and in certain cases, we know that this has also happened, a similar denial to MS patients, right? But I think it should be especially illustrative that in many ways, B is like the best case scenario. Oh my God, for yeah. This. I mean, just so just lucky. saying B like so you know B has been sick for over a decade and you know the the process to for instance getting to adequate treatment getting to even doctors who took her seriously first of all but then finding a treatment that works at least for parts of her condition IVIG get, getting to that point is like super best case scenario plus B is you know on like the gold standard of American insurance Medicare right mm-hmm. um that this is that this is still a problem and that this denial is happening it shows us just how how wide and easy how wide the holes are in the social safety net and how easy it is to fall into them right, right. but also this is one hole that you've just particular you know that you for you know obvious reasons have had to you know, become very familiar with, right? Mm-hmm, there are mm-hmm. like the, and I think the issue here is this is the, it's like the opposite of paranoia. You know, it's the assumption <laughs> that everything is going, is if it's, if it is decent and humane, it must exist. You cannot mm-hmm. be denied it. And mm-hmm. the reality, you know, is, is that you can absolutely be denied it. And, you, you know, uh, in many circumstances, you probably will, you should definitely not bet on. Uh, bet on it and that and and to the 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 bigger understanding that you have to come to here is like that is the way we've created we've deliberately created the system that way that's how it's been set up and you know assuming that this is just like a rare case or a one-off is you know okay fine like i guess make that assumption if it helps you sleep uh at night but it is a bad <laughs> but it is a genuinely it is a bad way it is i i also think that this actually helps to uh, explain why there's you know it there's less in a way like moral outrage or sustained moral outrage about the state of our healthcare system because as bad as it is people have been able to convince themselves that that it's somehow um, worst comes to worst, that they'll they'll sort of be able to manage, and then it'll be fine, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. And I think most people just like don't really understand what it's like to have a rare disease, or even what people with rare diseases are are actually up against. Because I just want to bring us back to something already mentioned that I'm like in a very best case scenario. You know, like a rare disease is in the United States. It's like a very specific designation. This isn't just like a um, feeling that I have that my disease is rare, (laughs) right? Like it's a, there's a specific cutoff, right? Um, So a rare disease in the U S is a disease that affects fewer than 200,000 people. Um, I think that's like roughly one in 10,000. That cutoff actually shifts according to country or health system, um, For example, the entire EU defines a rare disease as one in 2,000 people. So it's actually a much narrower patient population in the EU who's considered a rare disease than in the United States, for example. And then it's different in the UK under the NHS and it's different in Canada. But anyways, there are about seven to 10,000 diseases that that actually fall within that category of between, you know, 200 to 10,000 incidents or whatever. So the vast majority of rare diseases 
are only about 30% of those diagnoses. So like the majority of people are only about 30% of those seven to 10,000 diseases, right? And so then you have an even smaller population who make up those other, you know, thousands and thousands of different diseases, right? So most people, when we think of rare disease charities, we might have very visible rare diseases in mind. And those are the kind of larger ones. And actually, as I said, like cancer organizations tend to be those because of the way that cancer is so specified down to like type and and location and stage. And that actually means that cancers become um, almost like artificially atomized through Mm -hmm. their diagnostic codes now. So the idea with the rare disease framework is that we kind of have this idea that like rare diseases are rare and important and have attention and have big foundations or, or, or a kind of charity complex architecture supporting them, right? And I think that's part of also what's going on here is that, you know, when I talk to Medicare, they're like, well, have you tried patient assistance programs from the drug company? And I go, people on public insurance are not eligible. Medicare and Medicaid recipients are not eligible for (sighs) patient coupon programs, ma'am. And she goes, another fun. Are you sure? (laughs) And the first time it happened, I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm fucking sure. <laughs> and she was like, that's really inappropriate. And I was like, I'm really sorry. I'm off my vacation. I have to go now. But hung up. But not the only person who said it to me, the only person I lost my cool with, but like multiple representatives, both for the Part D plan and for just the Social Security Administration have been uninformed about the fact that their beneficiaries categorically cannot access these coupon programs. And on, honestly, the thing, too, is that this this 30 million Americans live with a rare disease like figure is bullshit. It is for sure way larger than that. The vast majority of people with rare diseases wait between five and 20 years for a diagnosis mm-hmm. if they are lucky enough to get a diagnosis mm-hmm. at all. Yep. And that we that don't talk about. That last part is a big one. Yeah. Well, I guess what's so disturbing to me about this is like that it is just about preserving leverage in a way that benefits insurance companies, because I don't know, like just thinking about your case specifically be, I mean, what's so like heartbreaking and what's so cruel about it is that like, (laughs) you know, you are one person like this denial makes a world of difference for you and makes almost no marginal difference, you know, for the for the profits of whatever, you know, Part D insurer you have. So I don't know. It's like this bi-directional, like statistical punishment. Like you're being punished because this structure favors the maintenance of like a larger structure of leverage over over being able to deny coverage. Even though, you know, in in your case specifically, it makes like, I'm pretty confident it makes basically no difference to the insurer. No, I mean, I can't even talk about this shit personally anymore because it's just so frustrating. Um, yeah, like this is happening for a margin of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Woohoo! Yeah, like that's how yeah. petty this shit yeah. is. And it feels Because make no mistake, bad. it is because that's expensive. also Yeah, that's an amount that I could never dream of fundraising or paying out of pocket long term. You know, like at once two hundred and fifty thousand dollars is like nothing to Aetna who's denying mm-hmm. this. But to me, right. I, it's everything. I can't even imagine a world where yeah. I where that I had that access to that money year in, year out. This is a medication I get every four weeks. It's between ten and fourteen thousand dollars a day. It's two days every four weeks, twelve times a year. And that that number is if paid out of pocket. And, and that's only for the drug. No, that's actually the, the insurance price that's negotiated right. yeah, yeah, down. Yeah, that's right. the low, pr- low, low price that down. Medicare yeah. pays. If I was paying out of pocket, it's a lot more expensive because that doesn't even include the nursing labor, which, right. by the way, Medicare doesn't pay for. And my infusion company has just been doing pro bono because they like me and they've been caring for me since 2009. And this company was just taken over 
by a private equity firm. And they are like in my corner. Despite wow. all of the other changes <laughs> the that they're doing, where I'm yeah. like, Imagine I'm that. like in shit. these calls with them, and they're like, "We're so worried that like our shifts to administrative procedure might have resulted in this denial." And I'm like, "No, actually, your shifts to administrative procedure are making your employees fucking miserable. Let me tell you. But this <laughs> thing is not your fault, though. I would appreciate it if you would stop fucking around with like the one company who seems to have." interested keeping me alive just because I'm a human who has intrinsic value and it's Mm -hmm. their job, which is like the weirdest thing to experience in healthcare. I'm telling you, like everything about the situation, I have an advantage. I am diagnosed. I have doctors that believe me. I have evidence in my corner. I have all sorts of the expertise to even understand what's happening to me that the infusion company didn't have because they heard, oh, doesn't meet the definition of medical necessity under section blah, 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 they go to section blah, 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 it's gibberish, and they go, okay, it must be the regular kind of medical necessity I'm used to doing in every single other context, right? So it wasn't until I go, oh, wait, guys, actually, let me walk you through what is actually going on here, that even the people whose job it is to be an expert in these appeals and manage these things, they didn't even have the expertise and background to access this. So like there is the amount of like kind of advantage that I have here. And yet the lack of like options I have is also really kind of a fascinating opportunity to look at some of the lies also that we have about, you know, the welfare state and people actually being able to to meet the kind of qualifications that we place before them. I mean, right now we have work requirements for Medicaid like very seriously being discussed at a national level in the United States. Work requirements do nothing but fucking punish beneficiaries, kick people off of Medicaid and deny them things that they're entitled to. All the meanwhile, like the companies who supervise and surveil and implement this shit they get to make a market, right? Mm -hmm. Like this builds GDP. The punishment of the poor and the sick is how we build our wealth in this country. And you should never fucking forget that because if you forget that, then it's very easy to get bought into the good life fantasy bribe that that person over there definitely has their needs met just because you don't, right? Like, and that at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, no amount of expertise, no amount of influence, no amount of, you know, luck, no amount of crowdfunding can come up against the intense desire that we have in this country to meet political problems with the opportunity to create growth in GDP through just these bullshit pathways of extraction that become so much more central to what we think of as being the point and the important part of care than, like, does that person get the care that they need? Like, the care that I need is so beside the point, and it's beside the point because we set the terms that way. Yeah, you're just a rent. Yeah. This. I yeah. mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's yeah, what, that's, sure. that is what your healthcare is, is yeah. booked as. You're just a rent for any number of, and, and actually a lot of different uh, rent seekers are taking a piece. Like yeah. that's the yeah. sum total of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is what we mean in health communism when we say, uh, like, B, I mean, B and I wrote, I would just say actually that a, a similar denial happened two years ago. Um, we did an episode called On Being Surplus that was about that um, at the time. That was two, that was uh, 2021. Um, shortly after that, a couple months later is when we were writing the bulk of health communism. And, you know, this is the stuff we were talking about when we wrote, I'm just going to like, not to quote from ourselves, but I'm just going to like read a, uh, I think quote that's very relevant, uh, for this, which is, this is why we write, um, quote, if the economy of health is to be bled for excess profit, then the fundamentally inefficient process of facilitating our mutual survival must be made to be efficient, unquote. And this is what that efficiency looks like. Yeah. Right. You know, this is what's setting up a system that does not just that not just allows but prioritizes bleeding sources of profit. Um, and you know, one of the sites of that extraction is the denial of care, the refusal of resources, and 
that means the site of that extraction is people like B, you know, Um, and not just her, like all the people who are going to be sick during their lives who don't know it yet. All the people who are currently sick, obviously. All the people with MS. All the people who will come after us. All the people with MS who are going to catch COVID in their infusion center who didn't have to. Who are not going to be kept safe by the tools because of the other tools they need to survive. Yeah. Can we... I noticed that you skipped this. Um, I'm going to break the fourth wall here and say that we had kind of a planned outline. I noticed, B, that you skipped the stakes part. Can you explain what might happen if you continue to not get treatment? Or do you not want to go there? No, I want to go there. But, I mean, for sorry. We don't, we don't really know, you know? Yeah. Um, we don't really know what's going to happen to me without my medicine. I've been on, oh, let's see. Like I, I first lost my vision in, um, June of 2010. I was sick from 2006 forward, but it wasn't until I went blind that anyone took me seriously. And so I lost my vision a bunch of times on steroids. We realized it wasn't being controlled. It wasn't going away. I started IVIG. I began to get my life back, get my disease under control. And I have not been off of IVIG since 2011. But while I've been on IVIG, I have had more attacks of cryon than I have ever seen documented in another case before. I've had continuous attacks since December 10th of 2017, and I have not been able to fully see at all since then. Like, I have very little vision left. What I have left is blurry. I'm missing most of my peripheral vision. And up until three weeks ago, I couldn't see color. But my vision changes all the time because it's like there's nothing wrong with my eye. My brain is choking the information and it can't pass from the eye into the brain because of inflammation. And so when it moves, sometimes stuff comes back and I've been able to see red for like three weeks. And I can't really imagine a way that I'm going to get to keep that with everything that's going on. And so. And that's just the visual. And that's just my visual symptoms. Like before I was on IVIG, I, um, I had very bad neurological symptoms and they're already coming back. I mean, there's no way I could do the show without IVIG and that fucking terrifies me. Yeah. Um, I'm approaching the threshold of like the longest I've ever been without IVIG. I'm, I'm I'm having a lot of trouble walking (laughs) So it sucks, yeah. But, yeah. you know, and has got to secure the bag. So, uh, you know, I become a pathway of extraction. And that's why we do death panel. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I kind of avoided talking about the stakes. I thought I could get away with it if I got us really into some of the more nerdy stuff and we got really fixated and then we could avoid talking about the right. stuff that I knew would make me cry. No. <laughs> Sorry for crying. It's just hard not to, you know. I'm crying I'm too. To I'm like Sheena on Vanderpump Rules. This isn't even happening to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, typically cry on cry on episodes like result in um severe visual impairment yes and and all of these other neurological symptoms but what they do also and and the mechanism of action is a process called demyelination mm-hmm. um so actually what's happening is that um my b cells in my immune system are like eating or attacking you know the cells that are the protective cover of the nerves inside of my brain. You know, it's um 
It's the disease process that you see in MS where you see what's called like an enhancement on the MRI where you see the, the sort of nerve degeneration. It's similar to, you know, a disease called neuromyelitis optica, which is also another uh, sort of rare demyelinating optic neuropathy disorder. Um, and I'm I'm very lucky in that I I don't have MS and I don't have NMO, so I kind of have this weird freedom of having a weird disease that we know so little about that I can kind of learn about my long-term outcomes as they come, right? Um, yeah. As I age into the disease, we get to learn what happens to people with cryon. Um, but at the same time, what that means is I really, I really don't, I don't know, and I don't know what to watch for, and I don't know what to expect, and we don't know what's going to happen and we're going to learn a lot and that's going to help the people that come after me but um all that research is fucking worthless if we can't also make sure that people with cryon can even get fucking diagnosed in the first place and then even get their even i mean you know a basic continuation of care that's been ongoing for a decade yeah, now yep. yeah so that's really why we need needed to actually have to talk about this today because like you know yeah. whatever happens with this appeals process like yeah we have to change we have to get medicare right. part d changed i mean this is important like even if it <laughs> like we don't know what's going to happen with this appeal we don't know what where we're going to be able to take this but if the best case scenario the trap door is still there yeah right exactly mm -hmm. and I it's going to keep it catching there. people that are not b yeah. And it has yeah. caught them before. It's going to catch, you know, people coming down the line. It's, yeah. And if I can barely understand that fucking gibberish, you know, I'm like one of the biggest nerds for this shit I've ever <laughs> met. Like, I would much rather spend a lot of time reading the Social Security Act than doing a lot of other things that people enjoy doing. <laughs> you know, I have I have that advantage of of loving the bullshit that these institutions produce and wanting to understand it and dissect it and talk about it. And even I am in this position, right? And that really shows you also how important it is to make a market when we make policy interventions in the health space now and why we always have to be asking ourselves a question when we're talking about any health reform, which is like, does this even achieve what we say it's supposed to do? Or Which is, it just is making provision a care, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Or are we just facilitating extractive abandonment? Because this is what extractive abandonment looks like, is a policy that is designed and sold as a way of covering prescription drug coverage for the most vulnerable Americans who have paid in and who <laughs> yeah. are deserving of their benefits, yeah. right? And yet, when you look under the hood of the policy, you see... It has nothing to do with providing prescription drug coverage, and it has everything to do with how do we take a population we have marked as undesirable and mark them up to make a market. And that is how extractive abandonment expresses itself in the way that the state constructs itself, right? In priorities, not just in the outcomes, but in, you know, why we do anything. Um, and why the policies exist in the first place. And what even a policy can and should be is influenced by that, you know? Yeah. I'm not, I, I didn't mention what Gore's plan was in the 2000 election, but it wasn't much wasn't better great. than it Bush's. Like, it couldn't have been very good. No, <laughs> it was another block grant style program that was a little bit more generous. And, you know, a lot of the debate was like whether or not they were going to, you know, somehow sneak in contraceptive coverage and undermine, you know, the Hyde Amendment that prevents federal money from going towards things that could pay for abortion. And so, you know, so it's like a lot of the conversation, like, never had yeah. anything to do with the fact that seniors and disabled people needed prescriptions that they couldn't yeah. afford. And yeah. the market had no interest in lowering the cost of those prescription drugs. And so rather than do anything to address the cost of pre prescription drugs, like seize the pharmaceutical industry, uh, any of that, right? Like you have instead, how do we make a market here? Right. Yeah. And that is the default 
response to political, social, and economic problems in the United States and all over the world. Somebody has to get paid. Some and, right. and it's and it's actually it's not just like picking, you know, winners and losers. It's picking who gets paid yep. and then who yep. is their like who becomes their sacrificial food. I mean that's the Right. Mm-hmm. So should I do uh our very narrow band of asks? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So if you're listening to this again, this is like I I think I'm I'm just gonna say it. Most most people listening to this, you you can't help. I'm just gonna be honest. Like, but we you appreciate you the can't solidarity. Really help with this. Yeah, a lot. We certainly appreciate the solidarity. We hope that you've learned something also about Medicare Part D through this conversation in general. There's I I suspect a broader sort of you know death panel history of part D and as a component of Medicare privatization and that all that history that we barely even scratched the surface of here. But, uh, for a very narrow band of you, I'm when I, when I say a narrow band, I'm like, okay, if you happen to be, if you're listening to this and you happen to be, for instance, a lawyer who does Medicare stuff or who is for whom the social security code is like your thing. And you know, exactly the thing that we're talking about. We would love to talk to you. Mm Mm-hmm. The other stuff that is potentially helpful is like a huge Hail Mary. If you're a staffer who wants to, this is, I'm going off, uh, not off script because we don't have a script, but I'm going off of anything that I talked to any of the other hosts about. So just, this is, this is me (laughs) speaking right now. If you're like a staffer and you're in some position, considering that there's a big budget debate going on right now. Uh, and budget changes, uh, like, you know, budget bills are often where changes like this are inserted into Medicare. If you want to just slip something in at the 11th hour, again, this is me talking, Artie, uh, not the podcast. Uh, not the I'm beneficiary. Not, <laughs> not of, the beneficiary. Not the beneficiary <laughs> speaking. No. This is my personal opinion. Um, yeah, so whatever. <laughs> anyway, that, that's like a Hail Mary. I'm, I'm mostly, no one get their hopes up about that. I'm just saying, you know. Anyway, um, the other thing that I would just say is if this exact thing has happened to you, and I mean exact thing, if this specific section, uh, what's the section again, B? If it's a section 1860D denial on um, medically accepted indications. Yes. If this has happened to you also, I I think it's fair to say we would like to talk to you too. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I'll be honest... You know, when we talked to the infusion company for the first time, for instance, they were like, I don't know. They'd never heard of this before. On some further reflection, it seems like they think it's happened to more people who then simply became no longer patients. Mm-hmm. They and said, uh, meaning they lost, lost track their, of people. Right. Yeah. They lost their, who knows what, what ha- happened. I mean, some of those people, you know, whatever. Anyway, but, you know, it's not like we necessarily are going to be able to do anything about this, but I think getting a sense of the scale, like if this is being routinely used by insurance companies and if, as I mentioned earlier, I think at the top, like if some of the best wonks out there that we know don't even like, aren't even aware of this section of the social security act, then considering that, you know, as we've talked about, there's never going to be a thousand, 10,000 bees out there because, you know, bees, rare disease is extremely rare people you know if you've gotten denied this for other conditions whether that's ms whether that's you know something else that simply wasn't in the medicare compendia for any drug for any drug under right? medicare part d um we would also like to hear about it and see see how common this is and you know from there who who the fuck knows but otherwise that's kind of, honestly that's kind of the end sphere of the asks if you will but what i will say is you know, this is why I mean, we've been talking about this so much already, but this is why we talk about Medicare for all all the time. You know, there's no ambiguity here um, that we've seen the result of the capitalist management of health. We've seen, you know, the end result of private health industries being able to be private, being able to for private insurance, for instance, being able to not only exist, but be part of uh, like a federal social safety net program right we've run this natural experiment long enough um Mm -hmm. how many people are gonna have how many more people are gonna have to die how many more people are gonna have to suffer or as in our case like drop their entire lives to fight to even keep their current level of care i mean it's a miracle that the show has continued 
I guess it's like a final thing I'll say is that my kind of deepest worry here, right, is that, you know, IVIG is this drug that if you have a, a kind of rare autoimmune disease or a not really well understood disease, there's a chance your doctor is going to want to try it. And I think, you know, there are so many different disease populations who use IVIG off-label. There are people who do not have disease diagnoses who use IVIG off-label for other things. It's used in um, like uh, in vitro fertilization procedures, right? So there's a whole range of folks who access like this entire category of medicine. And I know that um, about 90% of the people who use IVIG products are using it off-label. And, you know, part of the reason why what's on the FDA label is limited is because of capitalism. It's because of the structures of research and drug funding in the U.S. and drug approval, drug approval Mm. in the U.S., right? So, like, this is an issue which in one sense is about you know, one specific hole in the safety net, but it's also one that touches on all these other different holes, right? Which is why I'm saying like, it is actually an important moment to kind of look at and and imagine just how different this could be, not just for me, but all sorts of patients, right? If getting on SSDI meant that you could continue to work with your doctor to find the right treatment for your disease, even if you had a rare disease, or maybe if you have long COVID or MECFS, where we're starting to see off-label experimentations with all sorts of drugs, right? Like once those folks are on Medicare, if they get SSDI, they're going to run into the same problem too, because Mm -hmm. you know as shit, no one's going to be like, really making sure that we're adding long COVID to the compendia or adding long COVID to, uh, you know, the, the approvals or we're doing anything for other diseases. Because again, what we keep hearing from folks when we bring this up is, well, I had no idea that never happened. Or I finally did some digging and I found it happened and I can't find the patient anymore. And I have no information on them and I have no idea what the outcome was. And, and, I've, I even spoke to a rheumatologist earlier this week who was like begging him to help me like temporarily access my medication. And he knew all about it. And he said he'd experienced patients and lost track of them over decades to this. Like, you know, it's something that happens and we can't do shit about it if we can't understand what's going on and see what's going on. And because folks with rare diseases and folks on Medicare are part of the population that we like to not look at, it's very hard to see what's happening here. So that's really kind of, that is the first step to figure out even what we do, right? And to do that, that's why we need help and we need to hear from folks who've maybe been in the same situation. But, you know, unfortunately right now, like we're figuring everything out as we go. And I really hope that I can find a way to keep accessing IVIG in the meantime, because as I said, like, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. So God, well, this was absolutely not the short recording we were trying to do. So maybe we should just leave it here for today. What do you guys think? Let's let's, uh, wrap it up. Um, Patrons. We will see you Monday in the patron feed for everyone else. We'll catch you later next week to support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, send it to your friends who work in the Biden administration, (laughs) post about your favorite episodes, send it to your friends who work in CMS, send it to your friends who are lawyers and lobbyists, pick up a copy of health communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at death panel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
Dog. 